Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, July 25th, 2023 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz trombonist, educator, and composer Ryan Keverly. Hailed in the Jazz Times International Critics Poll, as the number one trombonist, a player of vision and composure, according to the New York Times, Ryan Keberly has developed a -a one-of-a-kind voice, both on his instrument and as a composer, earning distinction among jazz's most adventurous new voices. Keberly's outlets include the celebrated indie jazz ensemble Catharsis the big band Living Legacy Project, carrying on the rich musical language of big band jazz, featuring top veteran players in the idiom, the All Ears Orchestra, featuring Ryan's original compositions and arrangements for jazz orchestra, and Reverso, a chamber jazz collaboration with French pianist Frank Wosta, featuring cellist, Vincent Coutois, and drummer Jeff Ballard. Keberly's music integrates his wide-ranging experiences into a highly personal vernacular, immersed in jazz tradition, drawing on world music, indie rock, and other influences, seeking fresh and original pathways. His earliest work as a leader, on Double Quartet and Heavy Dreaming, featured an ensemble thick with brass textures and a malleable little big band aesthetic. Catharsis, with its invigorating trombone trumpet frontline, agile rhythm section, and the voice and guitar of Camila Meza, debuted in 2012 with Music is Emotion, followed by Into the Zone in 2014, and Azul Infinito in 2016. Billboard picked Azul Infinito 
as one of five jazz albums you need to hear. In 2017, Catharsis turned its attention to political turmoil in the United States with the protest album Find the Common, Shine a Light, praised by The Nation as unpretentiously intelligent and profoundly moving. Find the Common also saw Keberly emerging as a solid performing keyboardist, which was his first instrument, and as a vocalist. In 2019, Keberly and Catharsis released their latest album, The Hope I Hold, with lyrics and inspiration drawn from the Langston Hughes poem, Let America Be America Again. The album received critical praise from the New York Times, saying, All those tones give the lovely, splayed-out energy, turning his sign compositions into big, open canvases. And the Wall Street Journal said, The wordless vocals, lyrics, and solos emerge from gorgeous weaves of musical textures. Keberly has toured internationally as a band leader with both Catharsis and Reverso for years, engaging audiences at the Toronto, Ottawa, Rochester, Iowa City, Antony, Catuice, and Bergamo International Jazz Festivals, and at premier jazz clubs, including the Pizza Express in London, Le Duc Lombard in, in Paris, Stuttgarten in Cologne, Unterfahrt in Munich, the Jazz Standard and Jazz at Lincoln Center in New York City, and the Blue Whale in Los Angeles, among many others. Keberly's music has been featured in NPR's prestigious Tiny Desk Concert Series and on the French TV channel Mezzo. Keberly has also worked in endlessly varied settings with musicians ranging from superstars to up-and-coming innovators in jazz, indie rock, R&B, and classical music. As a featured soloist with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, he collaborated with David Bowie on his 2015 single, Sue, or In a Season of Crime. He has performed extensively with the acclaimed songwriter Sufjan Stevens and with Darcy James Argue's groundbreaking big band, Secret Society. He has also played in the big bands of Pedro Guerrado and MacArthur fellow Miguel Zenon, with Brazilian superstar Ivan Lins and with the Saturday Night Live house band. He has accompanied soul hit makers Alicia Keys and Justin Timberlake, as well as jazz legends Rufus Reed and Wynton Marcellus. Keberly has received a new Jazz Works grant from the Chamber Music America, funded by the Doris Duke Foundation. He has also been recognized with the Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation's French American Exchange and Tour Support Grants and its Special Presenter Initiative, as well as the South Arts Jazz Road and U.S. Artists 
international grant. Born and raised in Spokane, Washington, Keberly was surrounded by music from an early age. His father was a jazz trumpeter and professor at Whitworth University, his mother a piano teacher and longtime church music director. Keberly studied classical violin and piano before adopting trombone as his primary instrument. He moved east in 1999 to study at the Manhattan School of Music, where he came under the tutelage of renowned trombonist Steve Torre, as well as composers Michael Abing and Manny Album. He was the sole member of his graduating class to receive the William H. Borden Award for Musical Excellence in Jazz. In May 2003, he was among Juilliard's first graduating jazz studies class, learning under trombonist Wycliffe Gordon and big band leader arranger David Berger, with whom he has worked ever since. Since 2004, Keberly has served as the Director of Jazz and Brass Studies at the City University of New York Hunter College in Manhattan. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Ryan Keberly. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Craig. And how are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, Great. it was a hectic past few months, and I've enjoyed uh, just a bit of quiet time here at home these last few weeks, which was much needed as um, we ramp back up to, you know, festival seasons approaching and a lot of summer travel ahead. So it's been it's been a good couple of weeks for me. Well, that's great. It's really wonderful to have the opportunity to uh, to speak with you and uh, learn more about you and and uh, your music and and what's going on in your professional life. Uh, you know, a, a kind of a question I ask everybody, it's like their origin question, uh, hmm. is I'm always interested to know who turned the light on for you? What turned you on to music? Well, I have a fairly straightforward answer, and you've probably heard it before, but um, of course, it, it's it could be somewhat unique. My family is, are all musicians. My father and mother are both professional musicians. My um, mother's parents and my maternal grandparents were both music educators. Um, my father's brother was a professional composer and clarinet player, and his parents were also very musically gifted, although they weren't professionals. So I grew up in such a musical household that we had a family band. Mm -hmm. uh, both of my younger sisters also played. So we had bass, drums, piano, guitar, vocals, trombone, trumpet, and we had the whole the, the whole instrumentation covered. And uh, we used to play in retirement homes. And so all that to illustrate just how musical the air was in my house. I mean, there was always someone playing or practicing mm -hmm. as far back as I can remember. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it actually was a matter of, of, I think I took it for granted. And in fact, mm -hmm. to the point where my first year of college, I decided to pursue something other than music. And it wasn't because I didn't intend to perform or play music professionally, but I think I took it for granted that the music would always be there. So why don't we pursue other things that also mm -hmm. interest me at that time, which at the time was physics and engineering and math. I love math. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it became very obvious after a year of spending 
you know, half the day in a computer lab and the other half the day in a practice room, that that was not sustainable. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't enough time in the day. And so I decided to pursue music um, at the college level full time. I moved out to New York, went to Manhattan School of Music and then Juilliard School after that. Mm -hmm. And th the rest is history. So I was very fortunate. I think I, at the time I didn't realize how fortunate I was to be in such a musical household and to have music of all different genres also mm -hmm. um, in the air all the time. From the minute we woke up to the minute we went to bed. And I, I truly, um, you know, I, I really attribute all of my skills and success and, and opportunities to that almost entirely to that. Mm-hmm. Well, that is rather uh, a unique situation. I mean, I've I've had people I've interviewed before that have had, uh, you know, uh, parents that maybe played or or got got people interested in music, but really sounds like it was a family business for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it truly was, and and that also helps too, right? Because part of the apprehension many young folks have or their parents have is the the financial. Um, sustainability of that profession and so seeing mm -hmm. that that really wasn't an issue and and to see different possibilities different avenues um no surprise the first my first gig in new york was playing music at a church and singing mm -hmm. and playing piano that's what my mom did for a living and then now i'm my primary source of income um aside from touring and playing trombone is uh, teaching uh, at a university, running the jazz department at a university. Mm -hmm. And that's what mm -hmm. my dad does or just retired doing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think those models, having those models also um, was a huge um, mm -hmm. part of that process, as you said. Yeah. Well, I think it's always good to have support of your family uh, because uh, you're right. I mean, going, you know, it, it's sort of like, uh, you decide to go into a profession that's in the arts and it's sort of like uh, walking a tightrope, you know, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's not quite as, uh, or can seem to be not quite as uh, secure as say, you know, what you might get at, in other professions. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think in the long run, it, uh, you know, having family support gives you the confidence to go ahead and go for it. And, sure. uh, I mean, I, I think I had a similar experience in my life when I started college, I was a business major hmm. I, and I thought, well, I'll get a, you know, a business degree and MBA and, and, you know, and play music as a hobby. But for me, I got to where I just didn't like studying business and I kept getting yeah. this call to want to play. I missed music. And then it was some, hmm. so much where, you you know you I don't want to just do it as a hobby or I want to dive all the way in you know so yeah you go in a major in music and so on yeah so yeah I think uh, those are kind of similar similar kinds of things I hear from a lot of people uh, hmm. but I can still remember my mother though telling me I mean when I told her I was switching my major to music. <laughs> what are you going to do to make a living with a degree in yeah. you know so yeah. I showed her. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. Uh, so, you know, getting more specific, what, what turned you on to, to jazz and uh, the trombone as your instrument of choice? Well, I have my father to thank for both of those things. My dad is a trumpet player and um, okay. studied classical trumpet, but also jazz trumpet. He was a mm -hmm. Bill Adams student at University of Indiana, whom okay, you might sure. know or have heard of. And oh, yeah. So, um, 
he he started me my first instruments were piano and violin and very young my mom's a piano teacher and player um so i think it was you know the standard age fifth grade my dad gave me a trombone and uh started playing in the beginning band and all that stuff and but i took lessons with him from that very first day with the instrument and mm -hmm. um with his uh insights and uh, expertise i think that really put me on the right path and mm -hmm. i immediately took to trombone in much more natural ways than i ever did with the violin mm -hmm. i was quite good at the violin at that time um you know playing in the youth symphony with people much older than myself but the trombone just came so much more more easily for me and so of course as a kid you're going to start playing the thing that that's easiest i mean that's mm -hmm. just what mm -hmm. kids do the path of least resistance so I immediately fell headfirst into the trombone and, you know, um, shortly thereafter, my dad running the jazz band at his university and always being short trombonists also started me on a path of studying improv, studying kind of basic jazz harmony and theory uh, concepts. And um, I think it was even by eighth or ninth grade, I was actually playing with his university big band. Mm, so I had okay. some really early opportunities to um, to, <clears throat> to hear what more advanced jazz playing sounded like. Um, and that those opportunities continued. Um, when I was in high school, I got to play with the local Spokane Jazz Orchestra, which is a professional mm -hmm. organization, been around for mm -hmm. 50 years almost. And my dad was the director of it at that time. And so always having these doors open for me via my dad um, really allowed me, I think, many more advanced experiences and mm -hmm. specifically big band experiences because the big band has always been a huge part of my world in jazz. Um, and I have my dad to thank for all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's great. And oh man, Spokane, Washington. I I I'm from I I, I grew up in Boise. So oh, I'm wow, okay. familiar with huh. Spokane, but I always remember when I was in high school, always hearing about the, the, the jazz festival in Pasco, Washington, about what a yeah. big jazz festival it was. And I was there uh, many times. I think Though the last time I was in Spokane was probably about 1973, <laughs> 74, maybe, no, 75, wow. I think it was. There was an wow. MENC convention. Hmm. And uh, I had just switched, yeah. switched to music ed as my, as my uh, okay. major. And I remember going to the conference in Spokane. And I think that was the cool. last time I was there. So it's been a good long <laughs> while ago. Well, 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 it's a very different place now. Oh, I imagine. I imagine it's very different. I imagine I wouldn't even yeah. recognize Boise anymore. I mean, I haven't been back oh, yeah. in over 20 years. So, but wow. anyway, uh, yeah, life goes on and places that we used to know change and we probably aren't going to recognize it. them a whole lot. Well, let's talk about, um, you know, Clark Terry, the great jazz musician used to say you know first you imitate then you assimilate then you innovate mm. uh yep. who are musicians who have informed your style uh hmm. your, as a trombonist and as a composer and arranger hmm. well first of all i couldn't agree more with that um and when i was in junior high high school kind of those formative years i think for a lot of young musicians i can tell you you know which, literally which solos did i learn which which early language was I um, acquiring and trying to become fluent with. 
um, and artists that stick out to me and even specific tracks, J.J. Johnson and um, solos or perhaps not entire solos, but certainly phrases, choruses mm -hmm. from his album with Stan Getz live at the Opera House mm -hmm. was a, a huge one for me. Um, also, the Count Basie band and in fact, one of their more modern uh, iterations, they have a great song called Booze Brothers and there's this great trumpet trombone duet and the trombonist was a man named Clarence Banks whom I've gotten to play with many times in, in New York mm -hmm. City um, mm -hmm. interestingly but um, also Slide Hampton um, has a great album uh, called Roots and I learned every one of his solos off that album I'm not even sure if that's available anymore on streaming services it, it wasn't at one time I think my dad had an old cassette of it that I that I wore out mm -hmm. um, Dexter Gordon's uh album go and his mm -hmm. specifically his solo on cheesecake or i tried to learn his solo on cheesecake mm -hmm. um but that brings up an interesting point too because you know as a trombonist there's a lot of things you hear and you want to play and you just can't play especially younger trombonists because it's a really hard instrument and it doesn't lend itself to many of the jazz languages especially more modern languages bebop and beyond mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that because of my musical training elsewhere on the piano and the violin and just the development of your ear that comes with early childhood development i mean as a music educator you you understand this even if i wasn't able to play a lot of the things i was hearing they stuck with me they became a part of my language and so mm -hmm. as my trombone technique developed i already had the language you know in my ear in my body to to um to express on the trombone mm -hmm. um i think so that for me has always been an advantage um more modern um especially composition but i would say also still trombone more modern influences were or are still brad meldow um i've worn out just about every record he made in the mm -hmm. late 90s and early 2000s and same with mm -hmm. kurt rosenwinkel mm -hmm. huge huge influence on me compositionally and just a, a, a different kind of language you know, just they organize the the twelve notes in different ways and mm -hmm, put mm -hmm. them in, into different rhythms. Um, and then, of course, the big bands. I mean, for me, honestly, my my formative years were spent listening primarily to the Basie Band, the Duke Ellington Band. Um, later on, the Maria Schneider Orchestra, with whom I've gotten to play now for many years. Mm -hmm. um, dream come true, kind of thing. So yeah, the big band language is also a really important part and so the trombonists who are a part of that people like al gray mm -hmm. and um you know dickie wells and um lawrence brown Britt mm -hmm. woodman these are all people i grew up listening to uh, mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay all right well that's that's uh you know i think uh sounds like a, a good part of any trombonist resume <laughs> yeah you know, they're all great yep. players, but I think you're right about, uh, you know, that was the thing that was, I think was so uh, uh, unique and, and wonderful about J.J. Johnson was how he did adapt the bebop language so well to mm -hmm. to the instrument. And, uh, yep. you know, he really had chops and a lot of technique. So, yeah, it was always a great, a great sound, a great sound. Uh, you know, jazz comes in a lot of different flavors and, uh, you know, we, we probably can't even use that word to label all the music that might be unfortunately as like and maybe labels are superfluous yeah. anyway but yeah i'd like you to talk a little bit about from your your standpoint how uh, or what is the essence 
of jazz across all of its various flavors. And, and then how is jazz different from other styles of music? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. Um, as a player, I made a living playing in a lot of different styles. And it dawned on me very early on that what I was doing, and again, I attribute this to my childhood and the development of my ear at an early age, was I was hearing the similarities between styles. And this is not just within jazz, but across other genres. But the trombone is is a active instrument in so many different kinds of music. But, you know, our, our culture nowadays loves to focus on differences. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think mm-hmm. that's always been a, a, the case, but it's, of course, much worse now. Um, and that causes divisions, that causes unnecessary, uh, you know, feuds. And, and, and you see this in the music world. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was always hearing the similarities and, and specifically on the trombone, like things that you do on the trombone that are the same, not the differences, because the differences are maybe more obvious, but they're far fewer in number. Mm-hmm. And if you get those mm-hmm. fundamentals, the similar fundamentals down, it's a lot easier to cross across those those genres um so from a from a more conceptual standpoint and as an educator a fellow educator i had to come up with a definition right for jazz Mm -hmm. i used to use winton's definition he was a a a, a real kind of influential um educator in my life a, a mentor at one point and he says okay well you need three things you need swing you need improv and you need the blues and if you use very loose descriptions for each of those things i still think that works swing Mm -hmm. could mean rhythmic energy it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to literally swing you know the blues could be african-american influence in the language i Mm -hmm. still agree with that and then of course improvisation no one's going to argue with that but to try to make it more general and especially nowadays when you hear music like you said that some people if they didn't know what they were listening to would probably say that's not jazz that's Mm -hmm. hip-hop that's mm-hmm. not jazz. That's mm-hmm. classical music. Right. You know, and, and and the spectrum is so wide between some of these sounds. I was thinking there's got to be a better definition. And I've, I've come up with one and I've used it for years. And it it sounds kind of like a cop out at first. But then when you think about it, I think it really holds a lot of water. And the definition is jazz in 2023 is jazz played by jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, music played by, by jazz, by jazz musicians. musicians. Sure. Music. Because to be a true jazz musician means to dedicate oneself to become fluent in a number of languages mm-hmm. that all bring with it those things I mentioned, improv, blues, African-American mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. roots, rhythm, super deep sense of groove and rhythm and tempo and subdivision. And if you've dedicated your life to that and you truly are a professional jazz musician on the highest level, everything you touch will be jazz mm-hmm. <laughs> i think there's uh i think there's a lot of truth to what you're talking about i uh you know i, I as a musician wear a lot of different hats i mean and uh and within the <clears throat> scope of jazz i play a number of different jazz styles so i think that when i play uh when i'm playing um strutting with some barbecue yeah, I'm a jazz musician, but I'm a trad jazz musician because I've yep. studied the music. I've uh, yep. assimilated the style, or at least I'd like to think that I have of yep. the time period from which that comes. But that's really no different than when I'm wearing my classical hat 
and I'm yep. playing uh, in a, an orchestra and I'm playing a Mozart or a Haydn symphony. And I use right. a very different mindset than if I'm playing in a concert band playing Sousa or, or uh, you know, some other Robert Sheldon or some other kind of band composition. Mm. And I think a lot of it is, right. is we, I, I, you know, is, is a, uh, a mindset number one, but mm. it's a mindset that has to have some cred behind it. That is that you've mm. studied, you've dedicated a certain amount of time, you have an understanding and you can take and apply those skills you have to that particular music that you're playing at the, at the time. And I think a, a true right. professional can really switch gears. I had a really great discussion and I can't remember who it was with. It was another uh, mm. uh, professional. And we were talking about, you know, uh, how th th there seems to be a lot more cross genre music, you know, you mentioned yeah. like, like, and I think a lot of that, this is personal opinion is mm. the way that we educate musicians today, as opposed to mm. 70, 80 years ago, you know, 70, mm. 80 years ago, there was no real jazz curriculum in the schools. You learn jazz by That's going right. to clubs and listening to musicians or listening to records or whatnot. But now we have somewhat formalized jazz education, and it's right there in the university, in the academy, right alongside with learning, you know, we're still learning, uh, you know, classic uh, or, uh, uh, you know, classical theory, ear training, uh, all that yep. kind of stuff going on. So what yep. we're finding is more people that are, that are you know, really in, taking on all these various styles when they make music and we're not yeah. as compartmentalized, I think. That's which, right. Which is, well, a I, great, I couldn't agree I more. I, I would add that I think, you know, you can trace the trajectory of jazz um, via economics. And my, my history teacher, Phil, the great Phil Schapp did, does this. This is how he teaches his history class. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more, but the other thing is that that training is necessary because economically that's the only way one can make a living nowadays is by playing in many different genres. You need that versatility, mm -hmm. right? Because you're mm -hmm. not going to make a good living if you're only playing in one style of music. Right. Right. Yeah. There's very, very few people that would, would do that. And I, you know, and, right. as, and living in Wisconsin, I mean, it's, it's what I would always tell my students is, you know, mm -hmm. don't, don't, stick your nose in the air if you get an offer to play a polka gig because the money <laughs> the cash is just as green you know that's it man uh and that's it. and you want to be able to do that and you're going to have a more yep. maybe more opportunities to play polka gigs at least in yep. wisconsin uh or other parts of the polka belt uh than you might <laughs> jazz gigs you know uh and that sort of totally. thing so, you know, I think just being a good, well-prepared, well-grounded, versatile musician is really yep. what, uh, what one should strive for. But, uh, yep. well, Couldn't let's, agree more. let's maybe switch to a more of a cultural kind of issue regarding mm. jazz. You know, uh, jazz as a style, per se, is not central to American popular music today. Mm -hmm. uh, yet it still exists, it still lives, and it still thrives. Why and how has jazz been able to sustain itself over the past century? Oh, I've lost you, Ryan. Yeah, well, I think that's a great follow-up to our 
previous conversation, you know, I think economically all important genres of art have a number of economic drivers, you know, that provide opportunities for artists that cultivate relationships between artists and audiences, uh, in our case, you know, performers and listeners. Um, and so jazz, even though it's no longer a popular musical art form, it still has um, an avid fan base. And case in point, I'll be playing next week at Birdland with the Maria Schneider Orchestra uh, all week. And every set's going to be sold out. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's like 300 listeners in one club in New York City. And, you know, there's half a dozen similar size clubs in New York City and they're all well attended. I mean, there's a lot of people still spending money to go hear live music. Now, unfortunately, those same people are no longer spending money to purchase recorded music because they don't have to, right? Because we were undercut by the big record company, the, the, the big four corporations that essentially run the recorded music industry. And they're in cahoots with Spotify and Apple Music. And so now people no longer have to pay for their recorded music. So we have to we've had to get creative and, and i've seen that trend change even just in the last 10 years now most professional jazz musicians are supplementing their income through teaching mm -hmm. and specifically teaching at higher uh, academic levels um i'm no exception to that of course i i've been doing it much longer than that i've been teaching at my university for almost 20 years but most of the members of that maria schneider orchestra which is essentially the an all-star band um Steve Wilson, Donnie McCaslin, Greg Gisbert, all these folks, uh, Gary Versace, they all have full-time university teaching gigs or mm -hmm. um, part-time. So, you know, you follow the economics and, and musicians like most, um, you know, creative people are, are um, resourceful. They figure out how to sustain their lives and their their families so that they can continue to pursue their art so i think mm -hmm. of course that formula has evolved over the years and who knows what it'll look like in, in even just a few years from now because it seems like the evolution has has rapidly increased but um you know i think that's where we're at now at least and it's it's interesting it's a very interesting conversation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i think uh i think you're you know that uh most everybody i've i've talked to and i've i can't even begin to tell you how many different musicians from new york city mm. los angeles chicago mm. memphis nashville i mean cool. everybody has uh well i don't want to call it a side hustle that makes it sound like we're doing something <laughs> on the slide but you know i mean they're not making their soul living only from mm. performing Nope. I, I remember one guy, it was Andrew Hadro, in fact, a mm, yeah. very sax, bass saxophone. Yeah. If you've encountered Andrew, works for Van Doren. You know, mm -hmm. when I interviewed him, he was in his office at Van Doren Reads. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he said, I don't know a single, uh, you know, uh, pro player in New York that doesn't mm -hmm. do something else on the side. Yeah. He said, people that do are very, very, it's a very rare, very small percentage. So it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? And it, and it decreased even more over the pandemic because oh, those sure. people who were only playing were the ones who got hit the hardest because oh, they yeah. had no income to speak of. I mean, I was still making my, my full salary because we of course were teaching online mm -hmm. via zoom. Um, but you know, those, those handful of, jazz musicians who only tour and perform were really hit hard and it made many of them rethink their their 
the way they've built their professional life. And many of them have since gone on to go back and get degrees Mm -hmm. um, or have gone on to, to get teaching gigs or other kinds of um, income producing gigs. So, yeah, I mean, it just continues to, to move in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Well, and then there's also, of course, and I don't know how much you're experiencing this in your institution, but higher education is really kind of getting the squeeze in a lot of places too, particularly Mm. in the arts. So, you know, it seems like, uh, like uh, we, we really have to continue uh, fighting to hang on, but anyway, well, we, we need to keep producing listeners, you know, we don't need any more performers. And, and of course, you know, when the students have the skills and the talents and the drive to be performers, great, I'm going to support them. But what we, what we need to focus on is teaching those people how to really listen. Because I think oftentimes especially the traditional kind of Western European approach to music performance. It was so technically oriented that it mm-hmm. forgot to deal with the listening and with the humanity and with the, the emotion mm-hmm. and the feeling and those, the connections that, that, you know, those of us who, who are in this music for our lives that we all know and, and share, you know, with one another. So if we can cultivate those types of connections with the music and our young people, because there are plenty of young people out there studying you know, to, to be yep. performers and musicians. But, yep. but I think if we can try to cultivate their appreciation for the sounds and the feelings and, and therefore hope, hopefully cultivate their support uh, as listeners, mm-hmm. I think we'll be in good shape. I'm, I'm yep. optimistic in that regard. <clears throat> no, I'm right there with you. I mean, that's pretty much what I devoted my time to in my uh, higher education career because I taught, oh. uh, I taught non-majors, Mm. Uh, you know, music, priest, jazz, history classes, yeah. world Beautiful. music, all that kind of stuff, you know. Beautiful. And and that's that's really what, what you're talking about is we have to uh, get people turned on to listening to music. That's it. Uh, rather than Close just, their uh, eyes, you know. Other than <laughs> just hearing music, you know, I'm yeah. really having an experience with it. Yeah, well, that's it. I, I, I want to uh, jump down uh, and I want to have you talk about something that I'm very interested in knowing about you, you know, when I went to your webpage, you have several <laughs> musical projects, different bands going on. Mm. And, uh, and I can relate because I'm fronting six different jazz groups myself. Wow. Uh, you got uh, me beat. Well, that's okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm semi-retired. So, you know, I, I can do that, but I do that because, you know, uh, you know, I have different tastes uh, with, mm. within jazz. So I have a modern jazz group. I have a traditional mm. jazz group. I have a New Orleans style brass band. I've mm. got, you know, some other kind of things that I do. But I'm really cool. interested in your different groups. And uh, along with talking about your different uh, projects and bands, I'd like you to talk about, you, di- you know, how your concept from one group to another is perhaps different. What mm. is your artistic motivation that each of these groups addresses, um, you know, and, and why you feel a need to have these different forms of expression at your disposal? Hmm. Well, great question. You know, my first 10 years in New York was spent playing as a freelancer and as a sideman. And I, I attribute a lot of my language and a lot of my, you know, who I am as a, as a musician um, to those experiences, because that went beyond jazz. I mean, far beyond. In fact, jazz was only one of many different styles. And I think that as I, it became obvious to me that I wanted 
to not so much lead bands, but I wanted to play in groups where I got to be more involved. You know, as a sideman, you're rarely getting to take solos. You're rarely getting to be an active part of the performance, especially from an improvised perspective. Usually you're reading music by and large, pre-notated mm-hmm. music. And I love to improvise. I, I love that kind of just being in the moment uh, and communicating through sound with other human beings in a band on stage for an audience. I just love it so much. And so I formed my first band, Catharsis, in 2010. With that in mind, with some of my favorite musicians, and it was all about counterpoint. There was no chordal instrument, in it, so it was a lot of um, mm. contrapuntal writing between the trumpet, trombone, and the bass. Um, and that did very well. We, we were critically received very well and uh, eventually we added a vocalist and still very much contrapuntal the vocalist would do a lot of um uh vocalese you know non-lyric singing mm-hmm. um and but now we had another voice in the mix and but it just so happened that that vocalist the great camila mesa is also one of the best guitarists of her generation and so i just couldn't have her on stage not playing guitar she's so good just so incredible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then suddenly Catharsis has a guitar and I started playing synthesizers. And now it's like this almost like indie rock meets jazz, you know, completely shifted. But mm-hmm. <laughs> my point is that the shift came because of the musicians. And that's by and large been my philosophy as a band leader mm-hmm. is letting the musicians, the personalities and their skill sets dictate how I approach composing and, and band leading. And each of my projects is very much uh, informed with that in mind so my project reverso which is chamber music meets jazz it features one of the great cellists in all of europe his name is frank wusta and one of the great composers and pianists in europe um i'm sorry that's frank wusta the cellist is vincent courtois mm-hmm. but and then myself on trombone no drums no bass no no you know none, none of your typical jazz instrumentation it sounds like classical music when you hear us play mm-hmm. but for our earlier discussion, we're all trained jazz musicians. And so what we're doing is playing jazz. We're communicating through improv, through rhythm and groove, through uh, an African-American influenced language, but using a, a framework and an instrumentation and an aesthetic that people would recognize as chamber music. <laughs> and again, that's because that's what all three of us do really well. We all have those skills and those languages to draw on. Um, I have a big band. Of course, it's all original big band music. Uh, many of my songs and compositions that I've written for these other projects and then readapted for a big band and trying to feature the the specific skills of, of the big band members. Um, so that kind of goes without saying, you know, big band has a very specific kind of sound and aesthetic. Um, and then I have this Brazilian band that we're currently about to release a new album uh, next month. Mm-hmm. Our first single just dropped on Friday. And that's actually with musicians who live in Sao Paulo. They're Brazilians. And Mm -hmm. um, of course, they speak Brazilian music fluently, but they're also all big jazz nerds. (laughs) And they want, when I go down there, they just want to play jazz. They just want to play Cedar Walton tunes and Mauger Miller tunes, you know, and Mm -hmm. Art Blakey tunes. And I'm like, nah, man, let's play some Yvonne Lins. Let's play some Edu Lobo, some Jobim. You know, I want to play Brazilian music. So we've found this meeting in the middle because we both, all four of us, have those shared musical languages and are uh, we're fluent in those shared musical languages, that of jazz and modern jazz in particular, and and then also Brazilian uh, musical languages. That's been something I've been deeply, deeply immersed in now for about a decade, um, just on my own. So again, the the music we make is 
born not only from what I'm arranging and composing, but born of the skills and the languages that each musician brings to the table. So it's really a, a, a concept that allows the individual musicians, but also the way in which those individuals come together as a band mm-hmm, to flourish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, it's really kind of a, almost is an organic uh, uh, outgrowth, you will, of the personnel. It really is. I mean, it's almost like a form of improvisation. I mean, it's different. Mm-hmm. It's not solo improvisation, but it's like band leading improvisation to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's fascinating to, to think about, but I, you know, what I, Okay, I'm going to ask a, a, a question that I didn't uh, submit to you. So if you don't want to answer it, you can certainly feel well, free so not well. to. But do you change your personal concept of you, your sound, and your approach when you mm-hmm. switch from one group to another? Um, I do. I do. Okay. And because, you know, like per our earlier discussion, each musical language, certainly there are a lot of similarities. And that's what I focus on when I'm moving from one to the other. But there are also very obvious differences. I mean, if you're going to play classical trombone, you're going to play it differently. You're going to articulate differently. You're going to move your air through the horn differently. You're going mm-hmm. to use dynamics in different ways mm-hmm. um, than you would if you're playing, say, a salsa gig or if you're playing a lead trombone in the big band. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I do play differently, but but those are all languages that I speak fluently on the horn. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't, I don't think it would come off in the same way. I think it is a part. And again, it goes back to my childhood. I'm lucky to have those languages so deeply ingrained. And they're not even languages that I've become recently fluent in. These are languages I think I was fluent in classical music by the age of like seven or eight, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and jazz, big band jazz. I probably was fluent by 13 or 14. I mean, and of course, when you're young, you pick up languages more quickly, as we all Mm -hmm. have seen. So yeah, I think um, I do. I absolutely channel different sounds and different aesthetics, and I love that. That's mm-hmm. the other reason I love leading all these different groups because otherwise, you don't you don't have those opportunities as a sideman. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh. Yeah, because when you're when you're a sideman, you're you're expected to uh, go in and you've got to uh, do your best to do what the leader wants. That's it. And, and you uh, never so, know what that is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's like, I have a good buddy of mine who's a, uh, studio musician in LA <clears throat> and he says, you know, he goes in, he gets a call for a recording session at, you know, Capitol or wherever. And mm. he says, our main thing is to go in and make sure whoever the, the, you know, the main star is that they're, they're playing behind. Mm. We just go in and do our best to make them sound great. You know, we That's don't go it. in and we don't go in and, and we don't, uh, you know, make changes to anything. We just do what we're asked and then do the best we can. He told me about one exception that uh, there, he had a recording session with a, with a, uh, a reggae performer and, and, it, and they were like the third horn section that the producer had brought oh my in. Gosh. Yeah, because the, the earlier two guys. So anyway, one of the guys just happened to be hip to this guy's work. And so he said, well, let's just listen to a couple of recordings, see if we can, mm. you know, during a break or something. And, you know, and uh, finally, they were the ones that made him happy. But uh, mm. other than that, he says, you know, you just go in and do your very best to make yeah. uh, whoever you're working for sound great and and uh, and just leave it at that. And uh, so, yeah. yeah, no, that's so true. I do a lot of that work in town as well. I, I mean, yeah. 
during the pandemic, that was actually the first industry to reopen was recording soundtracks for movies mm-hmm. and for TV. And um, a lot of the Netflix and Hulu shows are, are recorded in New York now, the, the, the music at least. And um, yeah, it's the same deal. You know, you go in and one recording, you're playing musical theater, you know, another recording, mm-hmm. you're playing orchestral stuff, another recording, you're playing horn section stuff on Aretha Franklin tunes. You never know. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. Having the fluency in each of those genres is why you get called to those gigs yeah. as a musician. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> totally. yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think that's this. Uh, you know, as for my listeners, uh, great advice if you're aspiring to be a musician. I want to uh, Ryan. I want to drill down a little more specifically. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your new recording, Considerando. Yeah, Considerando. There we go. <laughs> and uh, tell us about this recording, who you recorded it with and or who recorded with you, where you re- did the record, any other kind of interest, uh, you know, about any of the specific tunes, anything to hmm. generate uh, my audience's interest in your new album. Yeah, well, it's easy to get them interested in because it's a tribute to Adu Lobo. And if they don't know those names, don't feel bad. Even my dad didn't know that name, but Edu Lobo is like Paul McCartney in Brazil. He's one of the most well-known living and still very active singer songwriters. Um, he came out of the Bossa Nova movement. So he's, it's not Bossa Nova, which is what most people know of. It's mm-hmm. what you might call MPB, Musica Popular Brasileiro. And that is the popular music from the seventies and eighties. And it's a genre that gave birth to other well-known musicians like Milton Nascimento and Gilberto Gilberto Gil, but Adu is really at the top of that list, especially when it comes to songwriting. And so the album is a dedication to him. It's his 80th birthday this year. And we play uh, six of his tunes, um, two of my tunes, one tune of the drummers and a Beatles tune. And Adu was also known to cover Beatles tune here and there. So that was why I included it. Um, But it features my Brazilian band. So these are musicians who live and work in Sao Paulo area. Um, They are, absolutely unbelievable musicians both in the brazilian um realm and in the jazz realm <clears throat> just incredible and to make things even more spectacular they've been playing with each other regularly i'm talking three four five nights a week for over a decade and mm. it's a true working band that i was mm-hmm. just lucky enough to connect with when i was traveling down there starting to to dig deeper into brazilian music and so this is our second album um, we're about to tour it in August, and then w- while I'm down there, we'll, we'll record our third album. So it's a very active group. Um, the pianist's name is Felipe Silvera. The bassist's name is Felipe Brasola, and the drummer's name is Paulinho Vicente. And the band's called Collective do Brasil. So again, it's a meeting of the minds, both American jazz and Brazilian folk music, Brazilian pop music, coming together somewhere in the middle there. And uh, it's just so much fun to play. It's by far my favorite project at the moment, the thing I'm mm-hmm. most excited about. And um, we're even f- figuring out a way to get them to come to America to perform this fall, which is not easy to do it's, uh, mm-hmm. with the exchange rate, what it is, and the Brazilian economy in, in shambles, more or less. It's not, a, mm-hmm. not an easy thing for them to do, but they're going to come to New York and we're going to play something in this area. But um, in the meantime, yeah, we have this new album, and I'm I'm just thrilled with about about you know getting it out there. So yeah, I'd love for your listeners to do a <clears throat> Apple Music or Spotify search Adu Lobo. It's E D U, 
short for Eduardo. So E-D-U, and then the last name is L-O-B-O. And uh, look, it's all great, but the earlier albums are my favorite, the ones from the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, my favorite album is called Sergio Mendez Presents, and he was a part of that Sergio oh. Mendez movement. Okay. Um, uh, 1971, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, it's just incredible. And and if they like what they hear, then they're going to definitely like consider on to my, my upcoming album as well. It's a lot of that music, but, okay. you know, through a 2023 American jazz lens. Well, it sounds great. That sounds great. And, and it'll help kind of open our ears up to uh, some other uh, Brazilian music, because I think mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. What we're most familiar with is Bossa Nova, uh, mm -hmm. due, largely to the popularity of those uh, those wonderful uh Stan Getz and Charlie Bird yep. albums and things that we've yep. uh, we've hung on to and yeah well that's that's great and uh, so I'm you know you mentioned you put some originals on there I'm hmm. curious to know uh, uh, you know what motivates you to write well I you know I kind of see composition and improvisation as all one and the same that the process mm -hmm. looks different but what you're trying to achieve is exactly the same in my mind. You're trying to uh, create compelling music that connects with listeners, that tells a musical story that creates tension and release and drama and an arc of a storyline. So, you know, I'm always kind of composing. Uh, anytime I'm on the trombone, I'm composing, creating new ideas. Anytime I'm at mm -hmm. the piano, I do most of my com real composing at the piano. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly finding new sounds, new rhythms, new intervals and harmonies and progressions, um, what have you. So, you know, I, it's something I'm always doing and always inspired to do. And so when I'm digging into a project like this with a real specific purpose, what I do is I immerse myself in that music. And so all I listened to for a better part of a year was Edu Lobo music. And I'm not like a full breadth of knowledge, really for me, even if it's just like three or four songs mm -hmm. that you just absolutely love i will put mm -hmm. those on repeat listen to those thousands and thousands of times mm -hmm. until i can sing every part the drum part the bass part the piano part because i've it's such a part of my own musical vocabulary and at that point i'll sit down at the piano and i'll start composing and it is only natural that you'll start drawing on some of those new new musical sounds and and uh phrases and rhythms and just overall language that you've been uh a part of okay <laughs> if i wanted to really pin you down what's yeah. what usually comes first uh a, a, a melodic idea a rhythmic idea a set of chord changes sometimes uh you might think of a lyric and then come up with a, mm -hmm. a melody or something that goes with it what what usually comes first to you well, of course, I've done all of the above, but I think in general, because I do most of my composing at the piano, it's a combination of rhythmic slash chordal ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm a professional pianist, and you know, so I'm fairly I'm not I'm not a working jazz pianist by any stretch mm -hmm. of the imagination, but I've got good chops, classical chops especially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can get around on the piano. And so when you're coming up with ideas on the piano, we've got 10 fingers, you're almost a full orchestra at your disposal there. Mm -hmm. uh, worth of sounds i should say um so yeah there's bass lines there's uh accompaniment rhythmic parts there's progressions uh certainly um and 
melody if you're lucky maybe there's a little melodic idea in my head that's concurrently happening but mm-hmm. generally it's it's rhythm and harmonic ideas that come mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. maybe some kind of a vamp or a, or a yep. riff or something like that yep. do you exactly. uh, do you uh do you uh like make uh recordings like voice memo or sketchbook or something when you get ideas thinking that you might pull on that later yeah i do that for sure um, uh-huh, but when uh-huh. I'm very actively working, I try to get it onto paper as soon as I can, because right. the quicker I get it onto paper, the more, you know, I think the fresher it is in my mind in terms uh-huh. of where it wants to go. And to me, music in the best of times as a composer and as an improviser, the music more or less tells you where it wants to go. I mean, when you hear an idea, a musical idea, your brain, your inner musical brain or ear will immediately fill in the the subsequent mm-hmm. idea the subsequent chord the subsequent mm-hmm. phrase mm-hmm. the subsequent mm-hmm. rhythm right mm-hmm. yep. just like we do when we're talking like you say yep. one word or one phrase you know what should or could mm-hmm. come next mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's the same with music so yeah. when i can get it onto paper it allows me to start that developmental process and following the music in more codified ways which which ultimately is what you got to do if you want to have something you know that you can um, that you can call a composition at some point yeah, I hear you. It's sort of like once your muse spews, you really want to try and get it out there before <laughs> you lose it. it. Yeah. 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 Well, I I want to uh that it's that's wonderful to hear. I uh you know, it's another thing I always ask people, you know, I hear so many different approaches to uh writing. Some are more well, sure. you know, studied, regular, you know. Um, hmm. you know, some tell me that, oh yeah, I try to write something every day. Uh, hmm. you know, uh, Alan Ferber, I don't know if you know Alan Ferber, but of course, he's he a good friend of mine. Yeah. Well, good. He told me when I interviewed him, he said, if he ever gets like writer's block, what he does, he sets out to write purposely, write the worst piece of music he can think of to write, <laughs> just to get the juices flowing. I love that. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then of course there's all kinds of things in between people. Some people say they go take a walk, they go for a drive in the mm. car and until inspiration hits, but that's mm. Uh, on a on a real practical level, I've got a couple of questions because I do yeah. have uh, not a lot. Uh, not, my largest percentage of listeners are, are a little bit older, but I do have a good number mm-hmm. of younger listeners. And mm-hmm. uh, so one of the things that I'd like to ask you, Ryan, is, uh, you know, based on your past experience, what's the most important thing that you have learned from your association with other professional musicians? Mm-hmm. Well, they probably, I think it it will will in some ways sum up everything we've been talking about. And I've alluded to it already, but, and I think especially for young people, this is true. But the greatest musicians, whether they're composers or arrangers or improvisers or performers, are also the greatest listeners, without question. And young people are up against a hard place because they they are perhaps the worst listeners in the history of humankind, Mm -hmm. given the smartphone, given the visual overstimulation, shutting down their ears, shutting down their, their aural perceptors. So they're going to have to work even harder to develop their ability to hear those details and to connect with the music on those deep, deep, deep levels um, that all great musicians do. So that's for me, it's everything because you know, whether you're educating or you're you're developing your own abilities, you can only achieve what you hear 
but you're really truly connecting to physically orally someone could say do this but you don't you can't do it until you can recognize what you're doing you know and and um that's everything you know and mm-hmm. for me i'm still developing that we're all still developing that i'm still mm-hmm. hearing mm-hmm. things and music that i've listened to thousands of times i'm still feeling like i'm connecting deeper and deeper to certain rhythms or certain grooves or certain senses of resonance and intonation there's no end to it but for young people it's really even just getting started you know moving that inertia forward because our our current culture has done uh, just a real number on shutting it down yeah it seems like we've gotten to where everything is so visually oriented yep I know, uh, and, and, you know, in a lot of ways too, we're more and more going that direction. I would, in, uh, late May, first week of June, I was at the international trumpet guild, uh, conference mm. up, up in Minneapolis. Yeah. And, uh, I hadn't been to an ITG conference in almost 20 years. And, mm. uh, uh, anyway, one of the things that I noticed, uh, that kind of was a standout for me was how much uh musicians are now beginning to perform with either fixed or interactive media extra yeah. musical media yep yep and uh even <clears throat> one group uh, brass quintet out of chicago the axiom brass hmm. they were they were performing with a computer program that actually mm-hmm. converts pitch intensity um uh and dynamic into shapes and colors Yep. Uh, I know it well. And, I know and, well. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, that along with, uh, uh, let's see. Oh, it was a performance, uh, went to Etienne Charles did one night. Um, and he awesome. had a lot of, uh, visual film, a filmmaker had made this film. Hmm. Uh, and so it seems like that we're, you know, we're trying to lure, that aspect of that visual aspect and weave it more into with the, uh, with the, uh, just the oral aspect of musical performance. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, you're right. We still need to try to teach people just to listen. And, yeah. I mean, there's, but, there's the economics, right? I mean, you, that's you what know. the grants, that's what the grants are re- rewarding. That's what the young people are paying to go see yeah. or to listen yeah. to. I mean, it's the economics. Um, and, and there's some cool things that can come about. I mean, we can oh, learn yeah. a lot of interesting things when we when we practice in different artistic disciplines. Uh, I've sure. done a lot working with uh, visual arts and, and uh, dancers, choreographers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I've learned a great deal about my own art through that process. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but yeah, unfortunately, a lot of it today is not done solely because of the the deepening of one's uh, you know artistic appreciation mm-hmm. for another mm-hmm. discipline it's done because of economics and yeah. and we've got to keep that in mind and we've got to like i said work that much harder to to focus on on the oral aspect of it because that's what sure. we do you know well that's what i used to, you know with my when i taught music preach you know and I'd, I'd ask students or i should say students would ask me about a piece of instrumental music no no mm-hmm. lyrics no text and they say well, what does it mean and I would say, well, what movie do you see in your head when you listen to it? And I love what, that. What is that music a soundtrack yeah. for? What what, what do you see in your head? Or or think about if we think about uh, a composer's uh, work as an extension of their uh, subconscious. What kind mm-hmm. of day? What kind of day was Beethoven having when mm-hmm. he wrote this particular piece of music? Mm-hmm. I love that. 
Yeah, those are great ways to to frame it. You know, kind of get them thinking about that instead mm -hmm. of having to look for the video. Yep. But anyway, well, yep. speaking of students, now you teach at a university. Uh, yep. What what advice do you yep. give your students who aspire toward a career in music? Same thing I just said. You just got to okay. learn how to listen. I tell them, you know, unfortunately, right. you're not hearing very much now. I mean, I can tell. I mean, all young people, I can tell that with for, for, with certainty. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm putting it on you to try to hear something in a record that you love that you mm -hmm. didn't hear yesterday. Go hear a new detail. Go mm -hmm, go mm -hmm, dig mm -hmm. deeper orally, because when you do that, you are now opening the door to also start to develop deep more deeply on your instrument mm -hmm. and to also start to ingrain or uh, become more fluent with whatever language you're studying at that time right all the other things that you're working on will become that much more um uh clear and more purposeful and more deeply learned by the student if they focus on the listening component first okay in my mind yeah well i think you got to have big ears that's for sure that's it that's it all right. Well, you've talked about uh, a new, you know, you've got a new recording coming out. You're about, you're, when you go to down to Brazil, you're going to record another yeah. album. Uh, what other uh, live gigs or now you got a tour also coming up in uh, August. What other live gigs have you got uh, or other recording projects have you got on the horizon? Well, I should mention, yeah, my, my tour in August with my band Catharsis is coming to your neck of the woods. We're playing the Fox Jazz Festival in Manasha. Oh and, yeah, sure. Uh, we're playing the Riverfront Jazz Festival in Stevens Point. Oh, uh, Labor Day weekend. So maybe some of your listeners can come join us there. Yeah, uh, that that's going to be, be great. great. And I got a new record in the can with Positone Records. It's an octet. My first time I've written for octet, so that'll come out later this year. Oh. And um, yeah, quite a bit of touring these days with Maria Schneider's orchestra. That she's been pretty active and. And uh, just little things here and there in, in the city, but all of that combined is is a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. But I would love to to see some of your listeners in Wisconsin later this well, summer, Labor Day weekend. Good. And you're going to be at the <laughs> the one in Menashe's, the Fox, the, yep. the Jazz Festival. Yep. Saturday, uh, September second. Saturday, September second, and then you're in Stevens Point that same weekend. Yep, September third at Stevens Point Riverfront well, Jazz Festival. I might just pop on up. It's oh, about, about do, a, a couple hour drive, but you know, awesome. it might be kind of fun to come see you. So I might awesome. just do that. Well, that's definitely great. Come say hello if you do. Oh well, I will. I will. And you've seen my face, so now you you can't exactly. forget it, right? All right. I will not forget it. All right. Well, Ryan, we've been talking for almost an hour, but is there anything else that you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? Man, I think you've had a really thorough and um, eclectic set of questions. So I feel like we've covered a lot. Yeah, I feel right. good about that. Well, good. I'm glad you do feel good. I, you know, I, I sometimes write interview questions like I used to write essay questions for exams. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, that. well, Ryan, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And Yeah, my pleasure, Craig. And I, I want to wish you all the best uh, with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Thank you, Craig. It's been a bit of pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. You bet. My discovery composer of the week is the Polish composer, conductor, and teacher, Zygmunt 
Noskowski. Born in Warsaw in 1846, he died in Warsaw in 1909. <clears throat> he studied at the Warsaw Music Institute from 1864 to 1867, where his teachers included Kajatsky on violin and Manutsko in harmony, and he studied in Berlin from 1872 to 1875 with Kiel uh, in composition and Versta in orchestration. During the years in Berlin, he composed songs, pieces for string quartet, and the symphony in A in 1875. This symphony, his graduation piece, later gained first prize with distinction in the Carolyn International Competition for Composers in Brussels in 1893. From autumn of 1875 until the end of 1880, he was based in Constance, where he was director of the Bowdoin Singing Society and Music School. He returned to Warsaw in January of 1881, and from that time contributed to the development of musical life in the city. He was director of the Warsaw Music Society from 1881 to 1902, for which he was active as a teacher and, organ and he organized concerts. He also attempted to organize a regular symphony orchestra, but its existence was disrupted by a constant lack of funds. In 1888, he became professor of composition at the Music Institute, in which capacity he taught a generation of Polish composers. From 1905 to 1908, he was director and conductor of the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra, and from 1907 was also director of the opera. He occasionally directed choirs. Throughout his life, he wrote music criticism for the daily press and for journals. In his concert reviews, he also drew attention to more general musical problems. Noskowski was one of the most important Polish composers of the second half of the 19th century. He composed all types of music, including popular works intended for a wide public and pieces for children. His large output was uneven in quality, and much of it is remembered only for its historical significance. The main characteristic of his, of his style is an emphasis on contrapuntal techniques. This can be seen even in the opera Le Via Quintilla in which the dense polyphonic textures of the orchestra dominate the vocal parts. The most significant music is found in the orchestral and chamber works. Noskowski's musical language is conservative. His harmony goes little beyond that which is characteristic of the first half of the 19th century. His symphonic and chamber works are built on classical cyclic forms, although the finale of the last symphony consists of five contrasting sections based on transformations of the same theme, thus showing some influence of the symphonic poems of Liszt. The resemblance is, however, rather superficial. 
Noskowski made extensive use of folk melodies, but these did not inspire him to undertake harmonic explorations. Step was the first symphonic poem in Polish music. It has colorful instrumentation and some illustrative elements. The All Music Guide lists three recordings of his chamber music, two of his keyboard works, two of his symphonies, five of his other works for orchestra, and four recordings of his works for voice with accompaniment. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video performance of Noskowski's Morski Oko, Lake in the Tatras. Well, that's going to wrap up episode number 147. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing Florencia Rosenthal of the Johnson City, Tennessee-based band Florencia and the Feeling. Other upcoming interviews include jazz bassist Stanley Ruvanov, Grammy-nominated keyboardist and singer-songwriter-composer Rachel Eckroth, New York City-based trumpet player Brandon Choi, and New York City-based trombonist Jacob Melsha. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.